Thanks, Jeff. I like that last little mental attention. Uh, so good morning, everybody. Oh, that was pretty good. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. A lot of other places you could be. Thank you for being here uh, at this time uh, on Sundays. Uh, we're in the uh, week two of a series on Advent, and what I'm going to do is, uh, if you want to follow along either on the screen or in the worship folder insert, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, uh, just from verses 26 to 33. This is our passage today uh, as we continue to meditate on and prepare uh, for the birth of the king. So from Luke chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, amen. I, man, we got amens in the first service. Amen moment there, as Drew likes to say. Uh, and the second service got it too, so well done. Uh, we are clicking. The spirit is clicking. This is great. Um, so my name is Jonathan Winfrey, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. Uh, and oh, they're, they're not online this, this service. Sorry, I always forget that. Uh, so thank you all for being here. Good to see so many of you this morning. What does Advent mean? Uh, we're in week two. Just as a reminder, the word means a, a coming to or an arrival. It comes from two Latin words put together. Uh, and it is traditionally the four weeks leading up to the season of Christmas that the church uh, celebrates each year. Uh, and last week we looked at, at, at this whole idea of waiting. What would it have been like for Israel to have had to wait 400 years of waiting, in fact, uh, and I said this in the first service, but a, a way that you can love Jeff, because he revealed to us that if you don't text him back after about four minutes, he gets nervous, uh, much less waiting for 400 years. So when he texts you, text him back, okay? It's a way to love him uh, well. Um, but Matthew, last week, gave us a family tree of Jesus, a family tree full of some questionable characters, uh, but to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the son who's been born, the child uh, given, or the son given, the child born, as prophesied by Isaiah that we read earlier. But this week, not only is his birth long awaited, it's a royal birth. The king is born. He's King David's son. And after all, in the Old Testament, God had promised David that his kingdom would last forever. And so that has to come to fruition at some point. And what you find out here is it's true. Christmas means the king has been born. God is coming through on his promise to David so many, many years before. But the question for us this morning, is he your king? Is he your king? Uh, let's be honest. It's a struggle for us to conceive of kingship, the sense that, have a sensibility toward kingship. The whole idea is pretty foreign to us, right? Because 
well, our world in 2020, it views kings and queens as quaint at best, right? The whole idea of royalty. Uh, or old-fashioned and repressive at worst, right? But it's so strange. I mean, take, for example, the royal family in, in the UK. People are fascinated by them, intrigued even, primarily uh, by the black sheep who make the tabloids. I mean, that's who we really care about, right? Um, but they don't carry any authority. Nobody, they don't issue royal edicts, right? We just, we're just fascinated by their, um, their, uh, uh, their figureheadness. Sorry, better way to say that probably, but that's how it came out. But we're, we're, we're interested, but they don't have any power to us or for us. And of course, we live in the place that fought for freedom. That's an amen moment too, right? Uh, I mean, we're Americans, right? <laughs> we fought for freedom from the tyranny of the king. One example of this, if you, if you look up the state flag of Virginia, don't do it right now, I'm going to just describe it to you. You can look at it later. But the state flag of Virginia has a woman dressed with what they called an Amazonia. So it's just a way of saying a Native American. Uh, and her foot is on the head or on the neck of a clearly a king who's flat on the ground. His, his uh, crown is over here. And at the bottom in Latin, it says, Six Semper Tyrannis, which in Latin means thus always to tyrants, meaning we will never have a king in the state of Virginia. This is what we do to kings. And that is a great picture of the attitude of our heart, really. Because whenever we think the government's overstepping its bounds, we let them know it, right? Why is that? Well, it's not just uh, where we live. There's something inside of us that really, really, really doesn't like being told what to do. And so if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I hope you'll see, and you can follow along in the, on the other side of the insert there, you'll see the outline, is these three things, that all of us are committed, all of us are committed to what I call expressive individualism, right? This sense of I reign my life. Uh, but the good news of Christmas, or is it good news, is that Jesus reigns. Jesus has been born. The king has been born. But his good news, the good news of his birth is only good news if he's your king. And if you will bow the knee and submit to him, what happens is you'll come underneath the last point there, a reign of grace. Uh, and so that's the, uh, the three points there, okay? I reign, Jesus reigns, and grace reigns. So first, I reign. Uh, there is an autonomy in the air we breathe, and it exposes our quite frankly, repulsion at having a king. It's such an odd idea to us, but it's odd and repulsive at the same time. Now, we didn't read it, but in Matthew's gospel, when King Herod is confronted with the question, the Magi come to him and they ask him, where's the king? He's troubled. Now, why is he troubled? He and all Israel with him. Well, he's troubled for one because he wants to say to them, uh, duh, I'm the king. You're looking at the king. Why are you asking where the king is? But he's troubled also because the question they're really asking is, where's the real king? Where's the true king? And he knows it's not him. And that's a question that troubles all of us. It's disturbing to every human heart because all of us, let's be honest, right? 
We all want to be on the throne. There's a little King Herod in each one of us, and anything that threatens the sovereignty of our kingdom must be eradicated. Now, that's, of course, the Bible's teaching on the state of every human heart. Not your will, but mine. Not your will, but mine is it's the, uh, what, they, what they call the kernel on which the code that runs the human operating system is based. So it is at the very foundation, not your will, but mine. We wake up every day, right? We have to repent of that phrase because it's naturally on our heart. Or as my daughter liked to say when she was a year old, one year old, I can do that by all myself. <laughs> really? No, she really thought that. Still does. Um, but, but believed it when she was a year old. That's all of us. And not only, uh, not only is, is that true, but in the West, we're now experiencing a commitment to and a living out of autonomy that's pretty remarkable. When I say the word autonomy, what I mean is a law unto yourself. That's really what it means. And a, a guy named Carl Truman, who's written a book called The Rise and uh, Triumph of the Modern Self, I can't recommend it highly. It's a great, great book if you want to read a book that says, why is the world the way it is right now? It's very current, up to date, and he traces a lot of uh, thinking patterns that have led us to the point we're at now. But he says this, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior is whether it conduces to the feeling of well-being in the individuals concerned. Did you hear that? The only criteria to determine whether I experience well-being is, does it make me feel good, right? Is it what I want? Ethics, therefore, becomes a function of feeling because the key to a meaningful life is discovering one's authentic self within and enacting that inner self's desires despite external opposition from things like tradition or authority or religion. That's what we live in right now, right? That's the air that we breathe. And here's the thing. Don't think of all those bad people out there who aren't in here right now. That's the air they breathe. That's them. No, it's all of us. We're all committed to this expressive individualism. Our culture says if you live a lie, that's what has to be avoided at all costs. You hear people say, I had to stop living a lie right? What is the lie? The lie is I wasn't being true to myself. And a great illustration of this is our relationship to institutions. Uh, A writer named Yuval Levin says this about the way we view institutions. He says, we have moved from seeing our institutions as formative to thinking of them as performative, from viewing them as molds that shape our character to viewing them as platforms that enable us to be seen. So I don't come to an institution to come underneath it and say, shape me, form me, mold me, help me. I come to an institution to say, I want you to do this for me. I want my so-called brand to be expanded. Now, case in point is we don't refer to social media companies uh, as companies or even apps. We call them social media platforms. And that's significant because what's a platform? Well, a platform is a place on which to stand and be seen, kind of like what I'm doing up here. That's uh, bad, bad example at the moment when you're the one doing it, but uh, nevertheless, right? We use it to call attention to ourselves or to our cause. Now, just a word of caution here. I'm not saying social media is wrong, sinful, evil, 
right, in and of itself, or if you use it, that you are. I just want to caution you because it's the air we all breathe. And so as you come to it, you have to be very, very careful. We're all in this expressive individualism. And so if you think of the power that's in your hand, and I don't have a phone with me, but if I had it, I'd hold it up and say, the power in this device to define and present yourself to the world is really incredible. And you have to be super careful with it. I would argue the most powerful institution in America today is social media. And while we view it as a platform, make no mistake, whether you want it to or not, it is forming your character, right? So it is forming and shaping even as you and I use it as a platform, right, to perform. It's very significant. And see, coming out of the sexual revolution of the 60s, what we celebrated was freedom and self-expression, right? Those of you that lived through the 60s uh, can attest to that. Freedom was on everyone's lips. Well, today, freedom's still on everyone's lips. We're addressing oppression and abuses of power because what? You want people to come out from underneath that and you want to free them. The only problem is uh, you might think you reign. You might think you're free in order to run your own life, but the Bible actually teaches everyone's reigned by something. Everyone holds the reins, or excuse me, something holds the reins, like a horse, right? We've all seen them, may have even ridden a horse, and we know what reins do. Something that affects your heart, your affections, your motivations. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's why you do the things that you do. You're reined by it. Now, not only uh, the Bible, but Bob Dylan also says this. And so I want to quote him because, listen, when, Bible and, when the Bible and Bob Dylan agree on something, we, we ought to pay attention. We ought to listen, okay? I'm just saying it's worth considering if, if we can use those two sources, right? This is an old song. Uh, some of you know it, may have heard it. you got to serve somebody, it's called. I'm just going to read one verse. He says, might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread, you may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That is so profound for me, particularly that it's coming out of his mouth, right, that he recognized that. And just like with human kings, the rulers of our hearts don't like rivals, and so rivals get taken down. They must be assassinated. They must be removed from power by any means necessary. An example would be, you know, I'm ruled by approval. So if I'm ruled by approval, then I have to serve approval at all costs because kings demand, rulers demand ultimate and complete allegiance. And so my allegiance to approval means if I don't have yours, then I will do whatever it takes to get it. And if someone else has yours, but I don't, I'll do whatever it takes to ruin them so that I can get yours. That's how demanding, that's how profound, that's how deep-rooted this is. Now, why is it all important? Because it reinforces self is ultimate. And it's why we get so nervous and offended when someone would make demands of us or require things of us, or why we, like Herod, find ourselves troubled when we hear the news that the king has been born. Where's the king? See, Christmas is not an interruption, 
that the world has dealt with and moved on. You know, things interrupt you because you're in the middle of doing something. You have to deal with the interruption, then you get back to what you were originally doing, right? That's how an interruption works. Christmas is not an interruption. Christmas is a disruption. Christmas is the single greatest disruption in the history of the universe. So my question is, how disruptive is it to you? Is it, has it continued to be disruptive to you? When we get to this time of year, is it a sort of a resurgence of the reality of the disruption? The king has come. And that leads me to Jesus reigning, the disruption of, of a rival's birth, because Christmas changes, Christmas has changed everything forever. But the good news of Jesus' birth is only good news if he's your king. So in order to get how disruptive the birth of Jesus was to the Roman world, and hopefully help you understand for us how, how disruptive he is, you have, to, you have to know how committed the Roman Empire was to staying in power. So what they would do was they would buy the allegiance of conquered peoples and villages, nations, and if they felt the leader couldn't be trusted, they would pay the people to rat out the leader. Say he went into hiding somewhere. Where is he? We'll pay you this much. You owe your allegiance to Rome. Oh, absolutely. We'll take the money. He's right over there in that cave. What would they do? They'd go say to him, you either bow the knee to us or we'll kill you. Because they didn't tolerate any competition. Their motto was, we rule, you don't. And the reason Augustus decreed that census so many years ago that led Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem was to shore up the Jewish nation's obedience. It was to remind them, Rome's in charge. Taxes provided revenue for uh, the royal family, for the military, for infrastructure, but taxes also provided a way to keep conquered peoples content and subjected to their enslaved status. But another way that the Romans did that was they liked to install puppets, puppet kings, lowercase king, Kings whose job it was to do the bidding of the capital K king, in this case, Augustus. And so in Jesus' day, you have this puppet king, Herod. He knew he wasn't really in charge, but he sure tried to act like it. <laughs> One example was he built his palace, uh, which he called the Herodium, right? I mean, it's like me calling my house the Winfrium or something, you know? He's just so full of himself. But why? Because he was so insecure, he knew. I'm not really in charge, but I gotta act like everybody around me knows I'm in charge or the gig might be up. And so all the Jews would know he was in charge. He built this palace, but when a king is born, a herald announces it. And so he, again, gets this word from the Magi. They come to him, where's the king? It was considered good news when a ruler was born, the word actually used was gospel. So when Augustus was born, a gospel was published. It was sent out to all four corners of the Roman Empire because they said, the son of God has been born. And if you look it up on the internet, you can read the uh, birth announcement of Caesar Augustus. It sounds a whole lot like Luke chapter one. The gospel, the son of God, the Messiah has come, right? And now peace and righteousness will reign throughout the empire. That's the kind of language that they use. Now, before Gabriel gave Mary the birth announcement of Jesus we read earlier, the prophet Isaiah gave one to Israel. Now, let me read it to you. Isaiah 52, verse 7 
says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, what's the good news? What, what's the happiness? What's the salvation? What's the peace that this herald is publishing? What makes it so amazing that the writer describes this herald's feet as beautiful? I can't wait to see this person arrive on the scene. Their feet are beautiful after they have trudged through mud and dirt for days and days to come to us with this amazing news. What's the news? Your God reigns. But the question is, is that the best news you've heard? Because for some people, that was not the best news they had heard. Caesar reigns. Augustus reigns. Oh, man, that means the Romans are in. I'm under the Romans for at least another, I don't know how many years. You have a king. The question for us this Christmas, given that we all have this Herod-like attitude toward being ruled, is, is that good news? Is Jesus' reign, is Jesus' birth the king, the king's birth? Is it good news for you? Well, let me just tell you this. It should be good news because you've never met a king like Jesus. Let me describe him to you. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, maybe uh, not a Christian. Maybe I've heard of Jesus uh, called these things before, and I know what Christmas is about generally, but I've never really heard him described. Well, let me describe King Jesus to you. See, ancient kings loved to sit on their horses on hills atop the fighting that was going on down in the valley, and they'd sit there, and if they're if their army got slaughtered, what could they do? What did that allow them to do? Bug out as fast as they could, man, right? They're not getting down in there. That's what ancient kings would do. But Jesus is the only king who got off his horse. He went down to the front of the battle, and he gave himself his very life to defend his people. That's a different kind of king. He was to be named Jesus, the angel told Joseph, because he would save his people from their sins. He's a savior. So he's not only a mighty king, he's a merciful king. He only deserved a crown, but he took a cross, so you and I, who only deserve the cross, might get a crown. That's Christmas, right? At least that's the beginning. There's no king like him. And yet, let me just try to, I'm trying to thread the needle here uh, today in talking about this because I want you to see he's a merciful king who's unlike any other, and yet he's still a king. He still demands Nothing less than the absolute allegiance of your heart, right? When, when, you're, when, you're, when you're sold a mortgage, right, there's a title that the mortgage company holds to your house. They don't share that title with 18 other companies, right? They have the exclusive right, if you don't pay them, they come get the house, right? Jesus demands and asks for the exclusive title, of your heart. Look there in the passage at verse 32 and 33. Gabriel says Jesus will be given the throne of his father David. All the way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, God said to David, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And so this is thousands of years later. And the angel is coming, announcing this to Mary and saying, It's true. It's coming to pass. We learn in the Old Testament God's intent for Israel's king was that he would lead the nation by serving. He would be unlike any other ruler that the world had ever known. He would reflect God's character as he shepherded the people. He wouldn't be obsessed with weapons or women or wealth. 
He was a student of the law of God, and he sought to model that law before the people. His rule was characterized by things like justice and righteousness, unlike anything else. See, every king in the history of the world has a beginning and an end, and his rule comes to an end in one of two ways. What is it? He dies, or he's conquered by another king. Augustus died, and so did eventually the Roman Empire. But Jesus' Jesus reign is the entire earth. You know how I know that? Because ancient kings, in order to show that they were the boss of whatever realm, whatever piece of land that they were the boss of, when you entered that land and throughout that land, what did you see? You saw statues of who? Of them. And everywhere you went, and if, you, if, if, if someone served in the military during uh, the uh, Iraq war, they can tell you there were, pictures, there were statues of Saddam everywhere. Why? So that everywhere the people went, they would know he's in charge. So in the ancient world, you'd enter or you'd exit the realm of Augustus or the realm of Alexander the Great or the realm of Xerxes or whatever it is. And throughout that realm, you'd see all these statues of them, not of anybody else, of them. So on page one of the Bible, what are you and I called? The image of God. So it's as if God was saying to the ancient peoples and today, I'm in charge and I'm absolutely in charge. You know how I know, now how you're supposed to know that I'm in charge? Because I have billions of statues walking around that should be, right, declaring that my rule is a rule that encompasses the entire earth. Gabriel says, King Jesus will reign forever and his kingdom will have no end. Yep, amen moment. That was it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, we read it earlier. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The nature of his kingship is that it will last forever. The Bible characterizes Jesus' kingship as one that encompasses, well, the entire universe. And the promise of Isaiah is that his governing and peace bringing will only increase. Did you read that? That's what he says in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's not like it's going to reach a point where it stops. No more peace. His governing only gets to that point. He, he only gets to the point to pass, just, just past Jupiter's second moon. And he doesn't rule anything after that. No. It says it's everywhere, right? And it will only increase. So as Christmas has come, it's the inauguration of that reign that up until, his present, up until this present moment, his government and his peace continue to increase. Lastly, let me tell you this about King Jesus. In the economy of King Jesus' kingdom, The exalted and the powerful are humbled and weakened. The hungry and the thirsty are filled, and those who are full and fat are sent away. That's what Mary sings about just a few verses later in Luke. It's the meek, it's the insignificant, the powerless, the forgotten, those who are foolish in the eyes of the world, who are valued and lifted up and honored in Jesus' kingdom. Because they are the ones who know, well, how needy they are, number one. But number two, they know who he is, and that he's a king like no other. He doesn't come to trample the weak and insignificant. He's a king who searches them out and then lifts them up. 
King Jesus turns the world upside down, and he'll turn your world upside down too. To be a Christian is to be someone whose life has been disrupted. I mentioned that earlier. Christmas is a disruption. And to be a Christian is someone whose life has been disrupted, never to be the same. See, if the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost all right to be in control of our lives. And that's good news. Well, it should be, right? Because I don't know about you, but trying to run the universe is exhausting. And I'm glad you laugh at that because you understand what I'm saying. But I mean, you know, you, go to, you, you get done with the day every day. I mean, you're exhausted. Why? Because you've been trying to run the entire universe. Because I'm committed at all costs to the kingdom of me and all rulers who compete with it must be eradicated. And man, that takes a lot of thought and preparation and, you know, planning and execution, right? To submit to Jesus' reign is to come under, finally, thirdly and finally, a reign of grace. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has made this possible In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes it as a state we're in. And I would invite you to go back uh, two two years ago, two and a half years ago now. As Drew was preaching through Romans, he described it as this sense of we're immigrating from one state to another. Immigrating, E-M-I-G-R-A-T-I-O-N. An immigration from one country to another. We immigrate from the realm of darkness to the realm of of light. We immigrate from the realm of sin to the realm of grace. As Paul puts it in the assurance of pardon from Colossians, we're transferred from the realm of darkness, the rule of chaos and self to the kingdom of light, the rule of Jesus, the realm of righteousness and peace. Man, that should be good news. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 again, printed in your insert, I just want to highlight two things as we finish that you have to, you have to know coming under the reign of grace. We have to know and believe the reality that the Lord is with you. What does Gabriel say to Mary? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. What do we celebrate at Christmas? The coming of who? Emmanuel, God with us, right? So Jesus Christ coming in the flesh means God has come near. He's become one of us. He's come to earth to taste our sadness. He's come to taste death in our place. And knowing that, tasting that, experiencing that will transform us. It will bring us under the reign of grace. The angel says, greetings, O favored one. What does that mean? Well, favor means grace. So she's basically saying, Mary, you are graced because the Lord is with you. When when something is graced, when a person is graced with something or a room is graced with something, what do we mean by that? We mean that there's some sort of adornment You're adorned, you're you're decorated with, right? And so Christians are graced ones. And only the reign of grace can transform you from being a rebel, a treasonous rebel who's fiercely committed to living according to their own autonomy into a child who's loyal and just loves serving the king. You know heaven will only be full of enemies who've been made into children. There will not be one person you meet in heaven who doesn't say, oh man, yeah, I was an enemy of God and he made me his child. See, graced ones have lives adorned with grace and peace because our king is a prince of peace. So you have to know the Lord is with you. But secondly, we have to know and trust the Lord is for you because Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. 
Again, it's that word grace. Mary didn't do anything to deserve it. God's grace did all the work because, of course, you don't find grace. Grace finds you. Right? I love, and this is not just because my daughter's middle name is Grace, but I love meeting and hearing when people are named Grace. Because every day, as your name is called and as you think about it, you're reminded of something that is so extraordinary. And rest assured, if your allegiance is to Jesus, conflict will arise. Just think for a minute about the scandal of associating with Jesus for Mary, right? She's 15. Um, I'm pregnant. Yeah, but I thought you and Joseph were, yeah, God did it. What? Scandal for her. Scandal for Joseph. Uh, hey, um, I know we're engaged, but I'm, but I'm pregnant. What? Uh, God did it. Say what? And then Joseph goes to bed that night, and what happens to him? Lo and behold, he has a dream. The angel has to come and say, Joseph, here's the deal, right? What about for Jesus' extended family? All the way up until his adult ministry, when he goes to Nazareth, what happens to him? He's, he's shunned, he's made fun of, he's mocked. So these people, his family says he's out of his mind. Because to follow Jesus, to associate with Jesus, brought some, brought some scandal, brought some questioning. Some who is this guy, right? For the disciples, for the early Christians who were often killed for their allegiance to Jesus, what about for you? Is there a cost? Jesus said in Matthew 10, I, can't, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And yet through the conflict he brings, peace results. He brings internal conflict to us. Just think about the process of repentance. It's a turning away from sin. It is a denying what? yourself, taking up your cross and following him, all that is hard and it produces war on the inside, right? Because the realm of I doesn't go down without a fight. And yet, coming into the reign of grace, you find peace and rest. Jeff alluded to it earlier. We read it this past week in community Bible reading in Matthew chapter 11. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's the only king who will say that. You don't find ease with King Jesus, but you find that submitting to an easy yoke makes you a peacemaker. Under the reign of Jesus, the one who was, as the old hymn writer says, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Kingdom of grace. Let me pray. And ask that he do that in us uh, as we come to this table. Uh, Lord Jesus, we worship you, King of kings and Lord of lords. We confess our commitment to our own kingdoms. We confess uh, how, oh, how often it is that ourselves hold the allegiance. Me holds the allegiance to my heart, the title to my heart. It's what motivates me. It's what drives me. And we pray and would ask humbly that you would forgive us, you who instead of a crown, laid aside your crown to bear a cross for us who only deserve, because of our treasonous rebellion, a cross. 
and you would endure the cross, despising its shame, and hand us your crown, which we would simply just throw right back down at your feet as we bow the knee to say, what king is there like this? And so come, we pray, particularly in the coming weeks, uh, to overrule us, subdue us, win us, uh, and may we turn away from those things that have caused us to turn away from you and turn toward you, that we might serve you with gladness and a singleness of heart uh, because you're the true king, you're the real king, you're the only king, but you're the best king. Uh, And so do this work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, Amen. Uh, And so one of the gifts that he gives us uh, as we go from here is this benediction. Uh, It reinforces the promise of both of those things that Gabriel said to Mary. God is with you and he's for you as you're going out into whatever it is that you're facing, right? But he's also a king and he demands absolute allegiance. He's the king who says, uh, I'll give you that ability, right? I'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Uh, And so he's unlike any other king. Will you bow the knee to him? Receive these words as you go. May they cement themselves deep into your soul uh, for whatever it is that you've got to endure and face uh, in the coming days. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.